that was the heaviest several hours of my life. To think that there are people actually suffering after the fact was, was heavy for me. Honestly, to me, that day was the worst case scenario, except that it wasn't worse. I thought it could have been a massacre. Hello, welcome back to One Decision. Here, we're going deeper on another tough one. To recap where we left off, Alyssa Farah, former advisor to Mike Pence and Donald Trump, was heading up communications at the Pentagon. This was just about a year and a half ago. Alyssa had just witnessed a momentous and quick decision taken by the administration only days after Iran-backed fighters breached the U.S. embassy complex in Baghdad a decision to take out the notorious head of Iran's feared revolutionary guard, Qasem Soleimani. But many inside the government, especially at the State Department, did not agree this was a good idea. There was pushback. Alyssa had some doubts, too, but was convinced by Pentagon lawyers that the strike was legal, that Soleimani was a terrorist on the battlefield. The missiles fired from drones killed Soleimani instantly, right next to Baghdad airport. Images circulated around the world of his singed, severed hand bearing his signature blood red ring. Breaking news. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. The Pentagon confirmed the U.S. military carried out the attack. Qasem Soleimani was one of the most powerful figures in the Middle East. Now, Alyssa's job was to face the world, to explain, justify, and keep the public updated, which in the Trump administration rarely went as hoped. And this time, sure enough, immediately controversy swirled around Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Trump and others saying that Soleimani had been planning imminent attacks against U.S. troops. That controversy existed inside the administration as well. Did you feel like this was trumped up or did you feel like this was legit? I mean, was this something that was kind of pushed? So... Being careful of what I can say, because I was privy to, to the intelligence, um, it, where we would battle is over the definition of imminent. There was a extremely credible, thoroughly planned um, potential to, to harm U.S. and coalition partners. The, the, the imminence is really the word that I think folks would get hung up on, how immediate it was. But I would go back to... What gave, I know what gave Secretary Esper and Chairman Milley peace about the strike. It was that we had a terrorist on the battlefield in Iraq. Right. So then if that's the justification, both legally and morally, why even bring up the planning piece? Like, do you think it was a mistake to communicate that, especially in the sort of back and forth way that it, it ended up being communicated? I would have advised that we probably not raise that as the answer. Um, we were a bit more, uh, I'd say, conservative from the DOD side on how we talked about imminent and the threat because we didn't feel like we needed that from a legal perspective. And what we also didn't want to do was create a speculation game um, or to create you know, a level of fear over something at a time when you know that the, much of the, the countries on their heels thinking that we could 
be on the cusp of, again, World War III. Well, whose idea was it to use that as part of the public presentation? Was it coming from the White House or was it the president himself? My, my recollection tells me it was first said by Secretary Pompeo, but I think from there it was echoed by the White House. Were you annoyed and were your colleagues at the Pentagon annoyed by this? It was challenging in the moment. So after this happened, there was a briefing for Congress and some even Republican members of Congress felt like this briefing um, from the administration was weak at best. Why is that? There was a lot of having to dance around things. I think we, in the ideal world, we would have a United States Congress where all 535 members can absolutely be trusted with classified information of the highest levels. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, that's not been my experience on both sides of the aisle. Um, yeah. So there, there were some real sensitivities on how much we could share. I, I'm just looking at this one quote, for example, from Senator Mike Lee from Utah saying, this was probably the worst briefing, at least on a military issue I've seen in the nine years I've been here. Why, why not brief these guys better? Um, the Senate one could have been better. The Senate one could have been better. Um, I think others who may serve and SASC and some of the relevant committees at least recognize that if you're going to do it, that was a once in a lifetime moment to do it. Then six days after the strike on Soleimani, far more ominous news starts bubbling up again from Iraq, Al-Assad Air Base, home to around a thousand U.S. troops. Troops that are now being attacked by rocket fire. Iran's response to Soleimani's killing was happening. Did people at the Pentagon, like, for the, were there moments when people thought, oh, God, th this is all falling apart? There was. That was the heaviest several hours of my life. Just knowing that you're seeing incoming ballistic miss missile fire and that there is literally nothing that we could do to defend that base and knowing that um, there were potentially Americans who were going to be killed as well as coalition partners. You, there was just there's no way to measure the magnitude of it based even on, you know, the sharpest intelligence and the best. Um, you know, we were able to see most of this in real time, but you couldn't tell like if it hit even, you know, five feet more this way, what it could have done and how it could have increased the, the casualties and loss of life. And that was a scary moment for everyone in DOD. Um, but I, I could sense the 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 tension and the concern in, in, in Chairman Milley's eyes and in Secretary Esper's um, in this fear that this could truly be a massacre. And thank God it wasn't. What What do you feel? Do you are, are you just like sick to your stomach watching this happen? We're getting report, reports that we have as many as a dozen cases of traumatic brain injury. And I was I was so worried. What's, you know, the worst case scenario? Are we thinking some of these people could die? How can we get them where they need to be? It, it was devastating. It, it was scary because, especially because I felt like on the home front, those of us who weren't ever in imminent danger, were perhaps a, a bit too quick to think all is well on the, all is well, we're good. This was successful. Everyone's fine. And then to think that there are people actually suffering after the fact was, was heavy for me. Um, and then the numbers just kept ticking up and it became clear that we had a, a very real problem on our hands, um, especially those with more severe cases. Um, 
and seeing the numbers rise to the hundreds, it makes you realize just how devastating that attack actually was. We didn't have significant missile defense capabilities um, at Al-Assad. So honestly, to me, that day was the worst case scenario, except that it wasn't worse. I, I'm, I, I, my heart still goes out to the 110 who were severely injured, but thank God we didn't have deaths because watching those in real time, um, watching the strikes come in, I thought it could have been a massacre. Are there not conversations, though, ahead of time? Like, why not fortify these places or with anti-missile defense before you take an action like taking out Soleimani? Well, that's it's it's the million dollar question that unfortunately has a few bad answers. Um, some of it has to do with our, our diplomatic status um, or lack thereof in Iraq. Um, we have tried to coordinate bringing in whether it's Patriot defense systems or else um, or others missile defense systems into the country and have faced resistance. Um, there's an appropriations aspect of it that um, the United States Congress needs to take some responsibility for. Um, if we're going to continue, you know, thinking about it as we're drawing down in Afghanistan, if you're going to keep forces places for prolonged periods of time, then you better as hell have the defenses necessary to protect them. Meanwhile, in the communication space, things also got worse. And then the next thing I would mention that we certainly got wrong on this, the president's initial address, he gave an address and said there had been no casualties. And that was true at the time that we gave those facts to the president. We were getting real-time updates from the field in the aftermath of the al-Assad strike because the nature of what the injuries ended up being were ones that didn't the effects didn't onset until significantly after the fact. Okay, so the people who had traumatic brain injuries, and there were a hundred or so mm -hmm. of them, was the White House kind of parsing the meaning of casualties? There was not enough weight given to the potential of injuries that could develop over time or even just the significance of the attack. We were getting real-time reports of ballistic missiles being launched at um, a number of sites, not just al-Assad, um, and I mean, the, the, the gravity of that, you, it's, it's hard to even imagine. I knew people who were on the ground there and you hear ballistic missile and it was a more sophisticated technology than we'd previously seen for most of the Iranian militia groups. We were thinking there could be significant deaths. So the Pentagon recognized that, but not the White House? There was an effort um, from the White House to want to say, you know, the Iranians were not successful in, in harming our targets um, in response. Yeah. And I think that went too far. And I think that it ended up glossing over what ended up being very significant injuries on U.S. troops after the fact. 110 American troops had uh, tra traumatic brain injury, TBI which can range from anything from a concussion to something that you could lose motor skills. So, so some of the um, troops, they did have severe TBI. Yes, um, but I believe about 80% of them um, ended up being able to return to the base after getting medical analysis and treatments. As the reports trickled in from Iraq of first this many soldiers with brain injuries, then a few more, then still more, Alyssa faced a disturbing decision of her own. She says the White House was insistent. They wanted the Defense Department to hold off on reporting what was happening. 
It's not how the Pentagon does things. And Alyssa, as spokesperson, was the one who would normally be releasing this information on real casualties in close to real time. We, we did get pushback from the White House of, can you guys report this differently? Can it be, you know, every 10 days or two weeks or we do a wrap up after the fact? And the White House would prefer if we did not give regular updates on it. So it kind of was this drip drip of quote unquote bad news um, that certainly helped folks who were critics of the strike um, you know, say that it was it was a mistake and these are the repercussions of it. Well, what, what did you feel when they asked you to do that? And you're the, the face of communications for the Pentagon. I mean, this is on you, mm-hmm. on your watch. What did you feel? I my feeling was um, if my experience had taught me anything, transparency is always going to be your best friend in that that field. We can't keep this information in. So we're much better to give the most accurate, up-to-date information as possible. I would much rather deal with that bad news story than the bad news story of you withheld this information from us. And that was what, what our office conveyed to, to our counterparts at the White House and elsewhere. You're always better erring on the side of transparency when it comes to to warfare in particular. Were you annoyed that you were asked to do that in the first place? Um, I'll say this delicately. I knew... Listen, the White House was dealing with a lot then. Why you don't you don't have to say anything delicately. You're not you're you're not beholden to these people anymore, Alyssa. Um, you can say whatever you want. They were dealing with um, impeachment, any number of things. I'm not even sure that their minds were all that focused on this issue at the moment. Um, but it was that like additional bad headline they didn't want. And I, I communicated as effectively as I could. You will be much better served in the long run to be honest and transparent and forthright and just give this information accurately as you receive it than to... Did they, did they accept that? Um, we, we were... I, I think they did in the sense that we just went forward with how we reported it. So you, when you reported it as you normally would in real time or as close to real time as possible, did they then get on you after that and like criticize the way you were doing it? Oh, there were certainly some phone calls from across the Potomac, um, you know, just expressing why are we seeing this in the press again? Who was this? Who, who was doing this, calling you and saying, we need to report this differently? I don't want to single out individuals, but I think that there were, there were folks on that that side of things who just frankly, they don't, they don't understand the military's obligations to the public. Yeah. Or, or how about just the transparency that comes with democracy? If you're a public official, of course, of course. And, um, I, I think they don't under, they didn't understand this. There, there seemed to be a lack of understanding of why you have an obligation to report things, especially in theater when it comes to U.S. service members. We made a decision from the DOD side. We frankly could have even done it better, but it was we're going to give you guys updated numbers and they may change. They may go up. They may go down. But um, we owe it to the Americans who are injured, to their families and to transparency uh, for our democracy to share that. Was that your decision? It was my decision among others, yes. So you, did you feel good about that? Or did that make your life a living hell as well? <laughs> I took peace knowing I thought I was making the right decision. And I'm, I'm confident in retrospect that I was. Got it. 
And what, did they give you any reasoning for wanting you to report such things differently? Or did they just say, this is how we want you to do it? I think the holdup was as simple as um, the cable news world of we, you know, this is another bad headline. Why do we keep getting bad news out of DOD? Like, can you get this under control? And the answer was, that's not how it works. And listen, we've all been on the side of like, oh, come on. I don't need another bad headline today. But um, it was the right thing to do. And we weren't going to change our minds and sharing it. Yeah. Well, there were certainly there must have been incidences in your job um, with the vice president. You know, when I don't know if you were his spokesperson at the time when he would say things like, um, oh, well, the spike in coronavirus cases that we're seeing is just because we're doing more testing or the uh, uh, there are there's significant evidence of voter fraud. Did those kinds of statements not bother the hell out of you? I was not with Vice President Pence's team at all during coronavirus, but um, I'll say this. Uh, Vice President Pence is somebody who I have tremendous respect for. Um, he and I have, I, I've spent countless hours with him. I know his heart. Um, I can't speak kind of to those one-off statements. He came in every day wanting to do good by the American public. So when in the in the coronavirus crisis, when you're you then sent over to the White House and you see the president for weeks and weeks and weeks downplaying and saying, we're fine and we're going to beat this. And, you know, we're not going to see these numbers like does the, does that not question your existence there? Like, are you going crazy listening to this stuff? I'll say this. Um I always keep conversations I had directly with him between the two of us, I think out of respect for the office of the presidency. Um, my belief is that I wanted to stay in my role at the White House so long as I thought I could influence outcomes for the better. Now, the, did that mean I was going to win every day, turn around every bad statement, fix policies that I disagreed with in real time? I wish, but absolutely not. Um, I saw something happening in our country with the coronavirus that was unlike anything any of us had experienced in our lifetime. Um, I felt I was marginally able to help in the communications efforts around it. But yes, no one liked the presidential tweets, myself being at the top of that list. I, you know, I could ask myself forever, should I have ever gone into the White House? Um, you don't get to make decisions twice. Um, I made my decision and I hope that I um, in whatever small way was able to marginally influence outcomes for good. Today, in retrospect, do you think the strike on Soleimani was worth it? I do. I do. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I don't think of the, the gravity of the injuries that came from it, but I truly saw what I truly saw months of escalatory behavior and an emboldened behavior from Iran that I don't believe based on any of the assessments I've been privy to would have stopped without such a shot across the bow to show them that we are serious. And, you know, my heart will always be with those who were injured in the aftermath of it. Those are brave men and women who they, they matter and they deserve the continued care they need. But I think we took a terrorist off the battlefield who was responsible for the deaths of thousands and could have been responsible for the deaths of thousands more. Um, are there any conversations that were really interesting that you remember about either the lead up to the strike or the aftermath? There was a feeling of the gravity of what we did, but it also 
people were happy. They were at peace. This was somebody who just a, a terrorist who plagued the U.S. military and our allies for decades. And um, I, I can tell you, you know, has several of the decision makers, um, you know, involved and who were in the situation room that day had served in the military in various capacities. There was a there was a relief and a, a level of celebration. Now, given that this strike on Soleimani only happened just over a year ago, are you not concerned that the real retaliation for it is not yet come, but it's going to? That's a very good question and something I was thinking about throughout this conversation. We shouldn't assume that there won't be more wanting to, um, to uh, you know, avenge who they consider the martyr Soleimani. Um, so I, I would hardly say we are out of the woods, though I do think the extended period of significantly de-escalated behavior from Iran is a direct result of knowing the U.S. government was willing to act uh, decisively and in a way that I think actually sh- shocked them. Okay, lightning round. Um, wh- do you have re- what's your regret, if any, about the time you served during the Trump administration? A very specific one. I regret that I didn't push more advocating for mask wearing. I always expressed that I thought we should embrace it. I told the president he looked good when he wore a mask and. You'll remember mm-hmm. one of the times he infamously did. Um, it was at my encouraging and a couple other folks, but I, I wish I'd pushed harder on it and I think I could have had more success on it. Um, okay, other lightning round questions. Does Trump do his own makeup? <laughs> um, in my experience, he does. Yes, he backstage. Um, we always have a mirror for him. He's super tall, so he slunches, kind of slouches backward and touches up his makeup himself. What brand does he use? Oh, I don't remember. But a funny story. He, um, we always have like a roughly the same mirror that we have backstage. But there was one time we were backstage and for whatever reason, he particularly liked the mirror. Um, I guess the way it was positioned. And he turns to me, he says, look at this. This is, this is a skinny mirror. He says, take this back to the White House. <laughs> it's like pretty sure the mirror we use at every event. But anyway, <laughs> Did you ever try to help him with his makeup skills? No, I, I, I did some of Pence's makeup. I never touched. You don't you don't touch the Donald Trump face. <laughs> Got it. OK, last lightning round question. Does Mike Pence really call his wife mother? <laughs> no. And this is a myth that drives me crazy because it's weird. That would be very weird if he called her mother. He was hosting a group of lawmakers when he was, I want to say it was when he was governor, might've been in the house. Yeah. Yeah. It was at a dinner. And this is when he has kids who are teenage years and he, he steps out and he says, mom, and he calls her mom. But my parents did that too. In front of kids, you say, dad, mom, he doesn't refer to Yeah. Okay. That's, that's true. I, and she was always Karen when I was around and the rest of us called her Mrs. Pencer or the second lady, but no, he does not call her mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Alyssa, thank you for clearing all of that up. All of those very, very important questions, you know, national security and makeup. (laughs) We, we, We like to cover it all. I think that was great. I really appreciate it, Michelle. So let's bring Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of MI6, in for a little wrap up. What did you think, Richard? Do you remember finding out that the U.S. had taken this shot and killed Soleimani? It was such an extraordinary moment. I mean, there was only one way it was going to have happened. Um, you know, it, it, it was a targeted killing. Um, 
And I, I suppose the reason it surprised me is because, I mean, the question of legality, even, you know, with an administration like the Trump administration is still a big issue. It certainly is a huge issue in the UK if you were going to carry out anything like that. And, you know, Cameron did actually carry out a drone killing against that um, jihadi John terrorist who had beheaded uh, as ghastly events. But, I mean, they, they did carry out, and, and that surprised me too. I mean, I think in the case of Qasim Soleimani, you could argue that it was an act of war uh, and it was a battlefield killing because as far as Soleimani was concerned, he had made the whole of the Middle East his battlefield. So you yourself feel that this was legally justified? Yes, I do personally. So if someone came up to you with a button and said, Richard, press this, and it takes out Qasem Soleimani, would you jubilantly press that button? Well, I would never do it jubilantly. I would sit down and say, well, hang on a moment. This is a huge risk. And, you know, have we considered all of the angles? I think I would have, I would have argued in favour of it because of who and what he was and because of the problems he had caused and would continue to cause and probably the bigger problems that lay ahead with his activity. I remember seeing the news that they had taken this move and just thinking, what? Like, am I reading this correctly? Um, what went through your mind when you saw it? Well, I, I think, my God, they dared to do that. Did the thought that they would do something like this cross your mind at all? Yeah, I think it has certainly crossed my mind. I mean, how, how do you get Iran to back off? But I, to be honest, if you'd asked me, are they, would they do it? I think I would have said probably not. It's a step too far. Got it. And what do you think this move means for Iran's influence in the region overall? There's no obvious successor to Soleimani. And it basically has sent the message to Iran, be careful. If you overreach, your arm will be shortened violently. And, you know, I wouldn't say this very often, but the world's probably a better place without him. Okay, now yes or no round. Was this a brilliant decision? No, not a brilliant decision. <laughs> because it, it, they couldn't possibly have anticipated its success. I mean, it, was, it turned out to be more successful than I think anybody expected, but I think that it... It, that, that was more by good fortune than anything else. Was it a reckless decision? Yes, it was. Because they couldn't have, as it were, anticipated what the consequences might have been and the consequences might have been quite, quite serious and different, but they got away with it. Was it dangerous? Yes, definitely. And what are the risks? What, what were the risks at stake at that moment? They're, they're, and there still could be, you know, a, a terrorist attack somewhere which might make the cost of this killing look very high and maybe not a worthwhile event. So, I, I mean, I would go as far as to say that we don't fully know what the Iranian response may be even now. 
you know, this is this is dangerous territory, and we shouldn't we shouldn't become used to it. We should question it every time that it happens. Well, it's great having you, Richard. Thank you. Yeah, great talking to you, Michelle. Thanks for joining us on this episode of One Decision. I'm Michelle Kosinski. Follow us wherever you find your podcasts and on social media to delve into the minds of those playing for high stakes and whose decisions can shape our world and our lives in it.